A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When I was the Executive Officer Cadets at the Australian Defence Force Academy and I'd talk to the cadets about what leadership was, I would tell them to lead from their heart and not from their rank side. G'day team, welcome to the Warrior U podcast. I'm your host, Bram Connolly. I really enjoyed recording this week's podcast with the head of ADF Recruiting, Air Commodore, Sue McGreedy, CSC. Most of you know that I'm on my own journey of discovery. When I joined the Army, women were not allowed in combat roles in the ADF. Now, in 2019, a person can apply to do any job that they wish regardless of their gender. And I do believe this is the way it should be. I reached out to Sue after watching her career from afar for a number of years and being impressed with her leadership style and her unwavering belief in equality. This is someone who I wanted to learn from. You know, I'm only two generations of soldier after those that survived the Great Depression and World War II. These two events had huge social impacts on my parents' parents and as a result, like many from my era, I was raised in a family unit where the men didn't talk very much to their sons let alone convey complex emotional issues. My generation was the result of specific social structures that have been created during and after the Great Depression to ensure the family unit, no, the nation, survived. And we need to remember this. It was a matter of needs must. The world is changing, and for the better. We have to have these discussions now with an open mind. Leaders need to lead. They need to educate. Take people on a journey and show them how it's done, or a better way. People argue about capability and physiology, standards, favouritism and sexual distraction. And I've heard it all. It just doesn't stack up. It's all rubbish. It especially doesn't stack up in this day and age with the acceleration and the constant advances in technology. Men and women are capable of being warriors. It just takes the desire to want to live the life of a warrior. There's no role that is the sole domain of one side of our gender. Our enemies don't discriminate. They don't discriminate when they conduct operations against us. I've seen that firsthand, so neither should we. Before we get stuck in, this week's episode is brought to you by my good friends at Aussie Strength. They have been sponsors of the podcast from the first day, and they have a massive end of financial year run-out sale on now, which ends on June 30th, so you'll have to be quick. They've also set up the Aussie Strength Warrior page for even more discounts. Use Warrior at the checkout to score a further 10% off their already marked down prices. They've picked a whole heap of tactical athlete gear for you to choose from. Their tactical weight vest, for instance, is only $149. And I replaced my vest from a top-selling US company with the Aussie Strength one. I'm not even joking. Also, the Valkyrie Home Gym Bundle. It's amazing value. It's $2,751. That's insane. I spent nearly $5,000 on my home gym, and the Valkyrie would replace the lot for half the price. Go check them out. www.aussiestrength.com.au forward slash warrior you. And I'd like to thank Ironside Coffee for also sponsoring this week's podcast. They're a family-run and veteran-owned business out of Canberra. They have a coffee van its call sign is Ironside1, which you can organise to visit your workplace or your local event. 
Now, if you love your mountain biking as much as I do, and you're an early riser like I am, they're also at the Majura Pines Mountain Bike Track Car Park at 6.30am every weekday morning. And make sure to tell them that I sent you. They'll probably give you nothing, but just tell them anyway. If you love your coffee beans, then reach out to them and get them home delivered. Righto, let's get on with the show. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Okay, Sue McGrady. Um, let's say that I could get you tickets to any sporting match in the world. What would it be and why? <laughs> Well, after this weekend, I'd have to say Ash Barty at Wimbledon this year. I love Wimbledon, but um, Ash Barty, she is a warrior. She's a Trojan. She is amazing, you know, to come from where she has to be the world number one today. Um, I just have to go along and be part of the Barty party. I like it. Um, yeah, so I've been watching her for a couple of years, and I, I, I can't help but feel that she has she sort of represents that grit and determination that you that you really want to see in an Australian you know sporting star, and it's just so good to see to see her be Australia's first you know female number one in how many years is it forty years? Forty years, yeah. No, she's amazing, and my connection with her also. She grew up um, not far from where I was, and we. The tennis club she played at, Joyce's in um, Western Brisbane, was also where I played tennis for a couple of years as a kid. So, um, yeah, amazing girl uh, and done some amazing stuff. You know, when she went to cricket, I was a bit disappointed. Um, I thought we might have lost her from tennis, um, but that she's come back. And I think that's the thing. She just was rejuvenated and, and knew that tennis is what she loved. And, you know, you know, the other thing that it sort of um, says to me is that there's this huge amount of, of women out there who are capable of not only transcending all sorts of different sports, but just basically doing anything that they put their mind to. Yeah, I think, you know, when I was growing up, that was the one thing that resonated with me uh, from my dad. He would always say, you can do whatever it is you want to put your mind to. Could you, would you mind giving the listeners a quick overview of your, of your life of service? Sure. Um, so joined the Air Force straight out of school uh, 32 and a bit years ago out of the um, western suburbs of Brisbane, out of home, uh, off to the Defence Academy in Canberra where I did a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Management. I was a logistics officer by trade uh, but have had you know roles across logistics and um, personnel over the years. Everything from the um, tactical frontline unit at number one operational support unit up in Townsville where we were providing airfield services to um, <clears throat> Army and Air Force helicopters um, in the field, at greenfield sites, uh, and through to high-end operational bases. Been to uh, Africa, to Somalia, as part of the United Nations operation in Somalia, um, which was war-like service. Uh, also did a year in London, living in Chelsea, which was very nice, while I attended the Royal College of Defence Studies. And in Australia, I've been posted to Townsville, Brisbane, Toowoomba, Ipswich, Richmond in Sydney, Moorbank in Sydney, um, Canberra, Melbourne, <clears throat> so all over the east coast of Australia um, and, you know, a couple of different places in the world. And, of course, Defence has also given me the opportunity to travel overseas as part of work. So, um, yeah, just one of those great things of uh, being part of the Defence Force. And it's pretty safe to say that Chelsea and Somalia... Um, not that similar? 
Oh, probably it. Yeah, they're, they're the extremes. They're the absolute extremes of um, lifestyle. And so you're now Air Commodore McGreedy CSC, and your role now is in charge of the Australian Defence Force recruiting. That's right. So I started here about 18 months ago. Um, Defence Force recruiting is a collaborative contracting arrangement between Manpower Group and um, Defence. And so we deliver about mm, seven to 8,000 recruits, Army, Navy, Air Force officers and other ranks to the Australian Defence Force uh, every year. Yeah, that's a massive job, really. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. I was just wondering, you, know, you mentioned Somalia. I, I assume that that's probably one of your most memorable experiences. Is there, is there any others or, or indeed that one that, that you want to share some experiences with the listeners? Are you going to make me pick one? Because there's been so many that are different aspects of service, I guess, that make it memorable. But, yeah, Somalia was uh, an amazing opportunity to really um, try to help the Somalis. I mean, it's very sad where they are at the moment and the civil war that continues in their country. Um, but, you know, it was it was nice to have a crack at trying to make their life um, a bit better. But I served with a number of different nations from around the world um, and we were a small contingent of 62 people and it was Army, Navy, Air Force. Um, we were probably one of the very early tri-service um, overseas deployments. I had 10 uh, SAS, or in fact it was 12 SAS soldiers as part of our force protection team. Um, we had a couple of communicators. Uh, we had some uh, mostly movers, really, in the team. So my role specifically was to liaise with the United Nations headquarters in New York and uh, arrange for transport in and out of Somalia for all the troop contributing nations. So it was uh, it was a massive job um, doing all the contingency planning. Also, that if um, it really went south there, then how would we evacuate all of the um, United Nations troops in quick time or slow time, depending on how much time we had? So yeah, United Nations experience in itself um, is amazing, and learning about the United Nations and its uh, mechanics are. You know, it's very interesting. I don't think you get the same sort of education um, at university about it. And, you know, speaking of that, you know, I did a year in Parliament House working for the Assistant Defence Minister, who was also the Minister of Veterans Affairs at the time, Bruce Scott. <clears throat> and the team in the office were fantastic. And they went out of their way to make sure that I got um, a political and um, strategic education. And I, I don't think that I could have learnt more um, if I had have done, you know, a master's at uh, university in international relations or politics or anything. So there's that experience and working in Parliament House and being part of the machinery of government and observing all that went on uh, was also, you know, a phenomenal experience. My actual experience in Somalia is probably a little bit, a little bit different than yours as a 19-year-old Ford Scout and. Yeah. yeah, and and I guess um, I, I was only twenty five, mate. I was only twenty five, um, and we uh, we were in Mogadishu, the Badlands. And I have to say, and I'll take my hat off to you guys up in Baydoa. Um, you were awesome. We there was an orphanage up there. I don't know if it was uh, started in your time, but there was an orphanage that the Australian sponsored in Baydoa. And uh, we the movers in Mogadishu. Once the battalion moved out of Baydoa, the movers in Mogadishu picked up responsibility for looking after that orphanage um, and the sponsorship that you guys had started. And 
we'd go up there and they'd see the Auscam, you know, get off the aircraft or get out of the ASLAB or whatever, or out, sorry, out of the um, APC. And uh, the Somalis would come running over and they'd say, Australia, 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 number one. And we go, oh, no, no, Somalia, number one. And he go, no, 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 Australia, number one. Um, and they had a huge amount of respect for the um, Australian uh, service people who are over there. And I can only imagine that was set by you guys and General Hurley um, and Major Stanhope and, you know, the rest of the team who were up in Baydawa in those early days. I saw a lot of things in, in Somalia around the human condition and in particular Australians and their empathetic nature, which I think people who were operating in that space didn't have that same sort of empathetic nature that, that the private soldier of, an, of Australia had. And I also saw that in Afghanistan as well, even in special forces units. You know, I do think it is part of our Australian culture, you know, a fair go and all that sort of thing. You are 100% correct. You know, I think the, the fair go um, is one thing, but the whole, you know, you would have learnt as a, as a junior soldier about the firm, fair and friendly approach. And I think the um, Australian service person is the epitome of that. And, and they, they just get it. And that whole um, egalitarian approach yeah, to life that I think um, stands us in good stead. Unfortunately, Somalia was back in a time really when we still had well, we didn't have mobile. There was no such thing as mobile phones. No one had cameras. We we didn't talk home, and I feel like a lot of those experiences <laughs> feel like a lot of those experiences were actually lost from Somalia. And I know a lot of the Somalia veterans that 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 then didn't go on and do anything else sort of feel that that it's a part of history that's been a little bit forgotten. Um, and I know that we're not here to talk about that today, but you know, as as probably one of the people left in defence, one of the highest ranking people left in defence that had been to Somalia, I'm I'm sure you probably know what I mean. Yeah, um, I have uh, a photo album of memories, and in fact, when I was over there, <clears throat> excuse me, I would um, take the old film and uh, send it home in the post, and it would take a week to get home, and then my girlfriend back home would develop it, and then she'd send the photos back, and she said, did you do anything but party over there? I, I, I haven't seen any operational photos. And it's like, no, 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 because when you're out in the carrier or you're in the back of the um, ute, You've uh, got both hands on your weapon. You don't have a free hand to take any photos with. Yeah. When did you know that you you would join the Air Force? Like when did that sort of nugget go into your mind and you go, you know what, I'm going to join the Air Force? My brother had joined before me. So he's ah. um, seven years older than me and he joined initially as an Air Force steward and then became a policeman, an Air Force policeman. In fact, he retired last year as the Provost Marshal of the Australian Defence Force, so he did really well for himself. Um, and when I saw the lifestyle he had, the training, the opportunities, the adventure, I thought, that, that's for me, yeah. that's for me. So he, I was um, 16 and wondering what I was going to do, and I had put in for uni to go to uni to do either a Bachelor of Commerce uh, or um, teaching. Yeah. And so when I went into recruiting, and initially I said, oh, my brother said I probably would be a really good air traffic controller. And this is the thing about the recruiting machinery. They are really good at picking people and matching them up to mm. what they would be good at and what they enjoy. Mm. And they said, oh, so um, air traffic controller, okay, so let's talk a bit more about you. And, and then they said to me, what would you have done if you, uh, what would you do, sorry, if you didn't join the Air Force? And I said, oh, I'll probably go off and do a Bachelor of Commerce. And they said, well, do you understand we have uh, a trade in the Air Force called, back then it was called a supply officer. Um, and I went, oh, no, no, tell me more. And, you know, that's where I ended up 
um, going to. And, and again, it was about the, my recruiting um, coach who was able to match me up with what I uh, was really interested in. Mm. It's safe to say that back then, back in the day, <laughs> it was it was different, wasn't it, for, for women joining the, the ADF. It's not like it is today. And so there would have been things that you wouldn't have even really imagined that you could have could have done, I assume. Yeah, so when I went to recruiting, uh, women weren't allowed to be ground defence officers is that right? or pilots or navigators or any sort of air crew whatsoever. Um, there were very few women who went into engineering. Um, but, you know, the large percentage of women went to be clerks or into um, uh, flight stewards, as it was back then, crew attendants now, um, to logistics um, or to um, personnel into administration. So there were lots of options that were not available and, um, yeah, and, and that's all changed. Every role in the Defence Force now is open to men and women. Do you think you would have done any other jobs if they were open to you back then? I don't really think I would have. I, you know, I talked about air traffic and, you know, looking back now, I don't think that would have been my thing. Um, logistics is really a good match for who I am. In fact, I did some personality profiling recently and uh, they came back and said, oh, you're very strong in leadership and uh, in the production space. So I went, oh, just as well. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a military loggy. That's probably um, where I'm best matched. Yeah. I wonder if we all find our sort of equilibrium at some stage of, of any way, you know, of, of those things that we're, we're a psychological makeup for and we sort of it leads us down that path anyway. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I'm, I've got a very strong um, HR stream to my experience base and, you know, that's, you know, I grew up as a people person. In fact, when I wanted to, um, I think when I was about 10, I said to my dad, I wanted to be a long-distance truck driver. I wanted to drive the big rigs in the state. And he said, you'll, you'll never survive. And I said, oh, well, why is that? And he said, because you'll have no one to talk to all day. You'll go crazy. <laughs> Imagine if he just said something like, you'll never survive because in the future there'll be trucks that'll be automated and they'll drive themselves into state. Like, mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> like Alduous Huxley. Yes, that would have been interesting. <laughs> um, I've... I've had some people on this podcast that have said that they don't think women should be allowed in, in combat roles. Some fairly notable people, actually, which I've had a, some open disagreements with. Um, but, you know, horses for courses, I guess. Does that sort of mentality frustrate you, given that it's 2019 and you're still hearing that same old stuff? Yeah, it's really interesting, you know. Um, I think, uh, for me, what crystallised it in my mind was a few years ago, uh, there was a lot of uh, uproar about women going into combat roles and General Campbell, I think he might have been Chief of Army or Deputy Chief of Army then, came out with a statement. I think it was published in uh, one of the newspapers. And it, he said, did anyone think to ask the women on the streets of Kabul what they think? And I think that that speaks to the very um, reason that uh, we want all comers particularly women who make up 51% of the Australian population in the military. And, I mean, the success of defence and our nation's security is reliant on our capacity to attract and retain the best possible talent, regardless of their gender, their race, their religion or their sexual orientation. Mm. So when when uh, you think about um, 
the success of women on deployment um, is, is actually a practical disadvantage to have an all-male combat force in a culture yeah. where it is routinely forbidden for women to have any interaction with males who are not family members. So having women involved in operations has a really, really powerful effect. Yeah, and that's I mean that's only one aspect to it, but it's a it's a yeah it's a definitely a, a solid you know, argument. But it's only one aspect to that. There's obviously so much more capabilities that can be offered by having and and the people that you can then attract by casting the wider net or all gender. Absolutely, and and that's you know that's again what General Campbell said. He wants the best people, regardless of of gender or race or sexual orientation in um, the defence force. So. You know, we have we've been ignoring a large percentage of the population for years, who are you know the brains trust. Um, in fact, you know the defence's newest chief defence scientist, Tanya Munro, is uh, I think a, a physicist. She's she's a brainiac, um, and so you know how can we make sure that we capture people like her um, into our defence force? And defence is really. Um, taken a strong line with the Women, Peace and Security initiatives that came out of uh, the United Nations because mm. research shows that the more women who are included in a peace process um, and within security forces, the more likely a nation will achieve a sustainable peace. I actually read, I read that while I was doing uni majors in peace studies and one of the startling aspects was, funnily enough, was about uh, the chemical reactions in the body and testosterone and higher male proportion government and how that translates to policy. By then having more females inside that political process, it seems to dull down the effects of testosterone across the population. I know that sounds crazy, but it's there's there's studies around that. And there is a, you know, there's a lot of uh, work that the um, Australian Institute of Company Directors has done, research on um, women on board. Mm. and why having um, a critical mass of women participating on company boards, particularly ASX 200 companies, they're the most successful boards are those that have um, a gender balance and, uh, you know, in terms of performance. So you can't argue with the data. No. Uh, so I, I think it, there's so many different aspects of um, our society where it's better if it's gender balanced. Yeah, and I'm, I was in the 1st Battalion when there was no thought given to having any females at all. In, inside an infantry battalion back in the day and I deployed to Timor with the Special Operations Task Group when the New Zealanders had a female platoon commander who, who did really well. I remember sitting down and talking to her. I think she was a lieutenant at the time and I was a captain. We were talking in the mess hall one evening and she was saying how there was no change in the standard for her and that she could do anything that the guys could do and that's how she was that's how she she was in that position that to me is the is the argument it's if you've got a standard then that standard can be met by anyone then everything else around that all the social constructs around that are the problem of the person that's perceiving it it's not the problem of the female or problem of the the male it's who it's individual basis but if someone reaches that same standard then that job's theirs I agree, Bram. And, you know, if you're good enough, you're good enough. Um, but also, you know, you have operated in small teams, so you know um, how the team dynamic is so very important. And not everybody can do everything to 100%. And it's about that mix of skills, you know, uh, that makes the team strong um, and gives them the capability. Mm. And having people who can think differently um, about a problem, um, and uh, that that's another strength, you know, that, 
that comes to the to the fore, particularly when you have women in the um, planning groups at headquarters, where you have a different perspective at the table um, about the issues you're trying to to deal with. I mean, who cares if you're man or woman, short or tall, gay or straight? If you're good enough, you're good enough. Mm. And you know, there are a lot of um, men who uh, the physical um, abilities um, are not the same as a woman. Yeah. Um, there are women who are stronger. Yeah. There are women who are taller, and so therefore have greater um, reach. Um, it, it, it just it's a matter of pulling all the strengths of a team and um, putting it into practice. Yeah, for the sort of um, field rank officers, I, I guess, and above that are listening to you know to this, there's that planning tool for operations, that A scope Permisi planning tool, and it's such a diverse planning tool when you're trying to work out what the society the society is and the operating environment that you're in, and to have more people with a, with a larger breadth of experiences there. Uh, makes something like that tool uh, more more effective. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's again, it's not just about um, gender either. So um, we yeah. have a really big drive um, in defence at the moment to recruit more Indigenous Australians and more culturally and linguistically diverse Australians, so yeah. that we get that different cultural perspective at the planning table and in teams that are out there and who can see it through a different lens. Right, and so and so in that way. The defence force is more reflective of the wider multicultural society than 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 one slither of it, I guess. Absolutely, and you know the, the defence force needs to reflect the people it protects, um, as the Spartans found out. So, my, so yes, we are. Uh, That's good. We we need to have people from all walks of life, shape, sizes, and so forth um, to to reflect what we protect, and and that's you know um, I think diversity may have become a bit of a dirty word. Um, and I said to my boss the other day, let's change it. Let's talk about what it is, which is a societal representative workforce. It's a bit of a mouthful for people to get their tongue around, but, you know, that's what it is. We want to recruit a workforce that re- represents the society we protect. Yeah. I think I used to think that diversity was an old, old wooden ship from the Civil War period. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an Anchorman. <laughs> that's an Anchorman joke in case you didn't get that. Um, <laughs> one of the arguments, though, and, and I think this is a – Bloody good argument because it does annoy me as well. Is the the different time that is required, for instance, um, to receive the Australian Defence Medal? And I don't know if this is factually correct or not because I've not been in the army for a few years. But I have heard that it's a, a faster accelerated process uh, for females to receive the Australian Defence Medal than it is for men. I'm not sure if that's rubbish that's, or not. Uh, true, no. Um, I, I'm not an expert on honours and awards. Uh, I understand though that uh, the Australian Defence Medal is presented to someone who completes four years service or their initial minimum period of service. So that could be a man or a woman who does a two-year initial minimum period of service or a three-year or four, whatever it is, but it, it, there is nothing about gender in that. Maybe that's where that happens is that um, a male in infantry has a um, service of four years and maybe a female's is three or something like that or two or... Um, if a, if there's a role that has a two-year initial minimum period of service, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, if you have a two-year initial minimum period of service um, and that is the qualifying period, then um, it doesn't matter about gender. Yeah, right. I'll check that. I'll check that out further. I shouldn't have asked a question without really understanding what it was I was asking, but I do think that in infantry there's some disparity between the two, but I'll, I'll check that. Yeah, that's interesting. So what are some of the issues that women face in the in the ADF, in particular getting into combat roles and perhaps even into SF? 
um, what are some of the issues that they face? I think you've talked about the physical standards, Bram, and, uh, you know, that that is what it is. Um, women uh, work a lot harder to get to some of the um, physical standards, whether that's because, you know, girls drop out of sport, team sport generally at the age of 13 these days in our society. Um, so they wouldn't have been as physically active in the lead up to joining. Mm. But inside um, defence, and in some in some cases in the community, um, the stereotypes and gender backlash is what's making things uh, most difficult. About you know a stereotype of what is uh, a soldier, sailor, or airman, mm. uh, and uh, that's you know changed a lot. You know stereotypes of what our past view is about something, mm. and so what. Um, our soldier sailors and airmen are doing today is very different to 30 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and and that sometimes uh, holds them back because people go, oh, you, you can't do that because, you know, you're a woman. Mm. Well, no, actually, um, mm. the, the stereotypes are dead. <clears throat> yeah, no, you and, yeah, you're right about the, the physical requirements are probably more difficult to, to meet, and that's not the female. As you said, I mean, if you've got a society that's, almost encouraging women to drop out of sport in some ways or or isn't supporting them through through that through that sporting lifestyle um then it would be harder by the time they get into the military to meet those sort of exacting standards it's interesting what we were doing 30 years ago when i joined in in 1991 the role of the infantry while it hasn't changed the role of the infantry is actually a little bit different now in the way that it's conducted, for instance, because of the equipment and because of the because of the speed of everything, the speed of technology, it changes it all. And it's while the role may well be the same, the way we conduct that role is vastly different. I agree. And uh, the way that warfare is now, or should I say defence operations, there's a whole spectrum of military action that um, we can take. We are um, a policy instrument of government, and so we are directed by government to undertake the actions. But the spectrum um, is everything from uh, humanitarian assistance disaster relief, and with climate change, uh, they're expected to become more frequent mm. um, through to peacemaking, peacekeeping, um, urban warfare, uh, cyber um, warfare, um, warfare in outer space, uh, through to high-end conflict, hand-to-hand. Um, uh, -hand. So there's a really broad spectrum of um, roles and types of engagements that we'd be expected to engage in. It's, uh, you know, the example I'll use is the Joint Strike Fighter versus the um, F-18, the classic Hornet. Mm. Now, the the guys who are, trying to, who are training on Joint Strike Fighter um, have to learn how to do dogfighting. Um, they have a really heavy helmet because a lot of the um, sensors and everything is on their helmet. So we're worried about their muscular skeletal damage and their neck damage if they're dogfighting, pulling G, looking around all the time um, in the cockpit. But the reality is that the percentage of the time that they will be employed in dogfighting in the classic Hornet versus the Joint Strike Fighter are completely different. Because of the nature of the technology um, that we have on the Joint Strike Fighter, it would be interesting if um, a pilot on a Joint Strike Fighter actually saw their opponent mm. because they have um, such great standoff weaponage and um, 
uh, senses that they may never get themselves into a dogfight. They need to practice it in case they do, but, you know, the percentage of time they'll have to use it is very small. So um, it's the same with the uh, the infantry soldier, how often they have to do hand-to-hand combat um, would be a lot less um, now than years gone by. Mm. Um, so it's a changing nature of warfare as technology comes in and, you know, Army is becoming a very technical um, force with lots of sensors on the man uh, or woman as they're um, walking through uh, an urban terrain environment or um, through the bush. Yeah, just the example you gave of the F-18 versus the Joint Strike Fighter, the public at home seeing a new news uh, clip showing a an aircraft is just seeing an aircraft. They probably don't understand the huge advances in technology that have gone in since the F-18. Oh, it, it's amazing. And, um, you know, people, there are people who are happy to uh, be a critic of the Joint Strike Fighter. It's an amazing piece of technology that, you know, we haven't begun to scratch the surface in understanding what we can exploit in that mm. technology. But I'll take you back to 1973 when we got this aircraft called the F-111 <laughs> and there were similar critics, there was all these problems with it, but it was bleeding-edge technology, which is where JSF is. It's bleeding-edge technology. Mm. So, you know, the F-111 served us for, what, 30-something years um, as a, an amazing piece of um, defence capability. And I expect that the Joint Strike Fighter will, you know, also be an amazing piece of defence capability. Mm. This sort of argument about infantry being uh, less hand to hand, you know, is probably is probably justified if you think about Korea and then Vietnam and then and I mean there's some elements in in Afghanistan that would that would tell you that every time we went outside the wire we we're in combat, um, but that doesn't mean that every time we went outside the wire we we're in hand to hand combat. Um, but yeah, I think that the point you make is is you know, fairly accurate. Um, but Bram, I would say to you, even when we're sitting in the compound in Afghanistan or Somalia or wherever, we um, were in combat. And you know, uh, remember sitting in the uh, courtyard, you can call it a courtyard, it's the place we lived in, in uh, the quarters we lived in in mm. Mogadishu, and uh, doing sit-ups in the, in the courtyard and, and uh, heard this thump. And uh, as I did my next sit-up, I looked across and there was a hole in the sandbag next to me um, around had just gone in there. Mm. So, you know, you, you're, uh, you're facing um, uh, combat, you know, whenever you're in the zone. And, you know, with the way cyber warfare is now, I would, I would say, you know, we even need to break that paradigm and think about, well, actually, um, are we in cyber warfare now? Mm. Are we under cyber attack now? And, and so it's, um, the changing nature of warfare means that um, we need to adapt to the different conditions and the different threats. Yeah, it's more omni it's more omnipresent for sure. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Just in regards to to women in particular, you know, how many actually want to pursue combat roles do you think? Like it is it not that it really matters I guess, but just out of interest, are we seeing are we seeing now that um, now it's open, now it's just now it's the way it should be. Are we seeing all these women <laughs> putting their hand up and, and giving it a crack or, or not so much? And does it matter? So last year we did the numbers on this and um, it was about 8% of all applications for army combat roles were from women. Mm, 8%. Right. And, I mean, we had only had uh, that open for two years at that stage. Mm. Um, so mm. I, I, it will take time to, to build that. Um, you know, pilots 
as an example, uh, we opened pilot roles to women in, uh, I think it was late 1986, early 1987, late 1986, I think it was. Mm. And uh, we had the first women go off, and I think they graduated in 1988. That was uh, Robin Williams and um, Deb Hicks. And fast forward the clock, and we were still struggling uh, to get women into combat, into sorry, into air uh, pilot roles. But last year, uh, so what's that? Thirty something, thirty-five years later, forty-three um, percent of all pilots joining the air force last year were women. Forty-seven uh, percent of uh, the air force intake last year were women. Thirty mm. percent uh, of the air combat officers were women. And across the ADF, I think it was something like 27% of uh, people joining the ADF last year were women. That's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, so I think um, Army's at about 14.5% women now. Air Force is in the vicinity of 23 24%, and Navy is at about 21 22%. Mm. Do you see a requirement for a quota system until we get this balance right, or is it just, or is it a lot more complex than that? Um, so quotas versus targets are two really different things. So quota, a quota is a mandated, um, legislated almost um, requirement that you have to fill. Mm. A target is an aspirational goal that you're chasing. And in defence, we have targets. So we work really, really hard in chasing after those targets. Mm. Um, and if we uh, don't um, have a woman who will fill the role, then we will have a man. Right. Um, so no man or woman, though, is forced to into infantry. Mm. So it has to be um, a choice that they make. And we have a video that we run at our Defence Force Recruiting Centres that's been produced by Army, which shows what life in infantry is all about. It's the best job in the and, world. And uh, every one of them has to watch that uh, and be convinced that that's what they want to do. Oh, God, I'd watch that all day. <laughs> <laughs> But we have lots of different initiatives to help us along um, our path with increasing the female representation across the Defence Force and in arms corps. So whether it be um, experiential camp where uh, we take young women down and uh, my daughter went to Pakapanyul, I think it was two years ago, to have a look at um, what it was like to join the Army into an arms corps. Um, and she came home and she said, no, not for me. Mm. That's okay. Um, so there's um, experience days where they go to flight camp or tech camp in the Air Force. <clears throat> We're trying to get a submariner camp um, set up in Navy at the moment. Um, we have mentoring arrangements. So in the Defence Force Recruiting Centre, we have a number of um, young women who are members of the Defence Force who talk to our young um, female candidates about what it's like to be in defence, you know, from someone who's lived, from their lived experience. Mm. We also have um, a preconditioning course that uh, we run for Army uh, and have been running for uh, five or so years where uh, the women go off to Kapuka and it's a preconditioning course which works on their resilience, their fitness, um, and prepares them so that when they start um, recruit training, if they make the standard, um, to start recruit training, they start on a level playing field and uh, they're well prepared. And in fact, some of the women who've gone through the preconditioning course um, 
have got the PT, the physical training prize at the end of recruit school. Yeah, cool. So uh, it, it proved to us that the preconditioning uh, has helped a lot. Yeah, I've seen in CrossFit, there's plenty of women out there that kick my ass. So yeah, I've no doubt there's some. <laughs> you know, I mean, even that, even just saying something like that is is not really helpful. To be fair, um, there's just people that are better than me. One thing that one thing that did annoy me though that I heard was that there was a point where men weren't being taken into infantry because there was a target for females, so they're only taking females, which is. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but certainly that was being passed back to me through through initiatives that I was running. And I don't think that sort of serves to – if that is true, then there's there's people who miss that one year or they miss that two year and then they go off and do something else and they, and they may have been the best person for the job. So all Australians can apply and be enlisted into – There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss all roles within defence as long as they can meet all the demands of the role. You could apply um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe those women were better than the men and that's why the men didn't get in. Um, but, you know, if we look at, through the recruiting process, we look at the whole person. Yeah. We don't just look at the physicality. Yeah. We look at um, their psychological um, stability, their um, mental resilience, their education, background, their ability to work as part of a team, mm. um, the, the medical um, aspects so that they are medically fit. Um, so we, we don't just take a one-dimensional view. Uh, we look at all aspects of a human and their ability to contribute to the team. Yeah, I mean, it would be a lack of moral courage for me not to point out that that's not the message that was being conveyed by recruiters at DFR to some of these guys. They were telling them that, no, there's no ro- there's no roles for men in infantry at this time. That's what they were being told. Yeah, well, that, that was probably because um, we had enough men. Um, and the, the uh, infantry soldier and I think it's the CAV scout are uh, our two most popular roles. So there are lots and lots of people applying um, and so it was probably easy for us to fill um, mm. the male um, element, and then we need to get women in there. Right. And which uh, is a, yeah, so it may have been yeah. that, you know, those guys uh, were applying for a role which was super, super competitive. Yeah, which of course is, a, you know, it's a different way for them to frame it and they probably weren't framing it as well as what you were. And so these guys are hearing, perhaps hearing what they want to hear as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah fair call. Have things changed very much, do you think, for... I was going to say for women in the ADF, but really, has things changed much, do you think, in the ADF in the time that you've served? Oh, amazing change. Um, I think um, our recapitalisation of the Defence Force, particularly over the last couple of years, so Air Force has had its turn, it's really Navy's turn and Army's turn now, um, has given us the best technology that we could ask for. Mm. Um, And in terms of um, the way we conduct operations completely different you know uh, and you probably saw this Bram from Somalia to East Timor to Afghanistan about how 
we approach operations differently. Mm, for sure. Yeah. I started to get higher in rank and start to start to run stuff. So obviously it got better. <laughs> but I mean, when I, when, I, uh, when I joined, this. I think yeah. we had just had the fight to get equal pay for equal work. Mm. Um, but we still have a problem. And I think this is across society. You know, they talk about the gender pay gap where um, society as a general does not value what is seen as women's work. Mm. Now, most guys will tell me that um, uh, the hardest part about their job is doing the people bit, mm. um, getting uh, people, the people management piece right. But uh, the, the uh, HR world is dominated by women, mm. but it's the hardest job. So how does that work that they get paid less than um, some of the male-dominated mm. roles. But, you know, uh, as I sit next to my logistician uh, male colleagues, um, we are on equal pay. Yeah, and there's things that just haven't kept up, though. Like I look at, I look at PM Keys, and it hasn't changed really in, in all that time since it was rolled out, you know. And so it, no. Um, and so there is those sort yep. of elements. PM Keys, sorry, I was going to say, PM Keys was rolled out in 2002, um, and we have had an upgrade to it and a bit of a patchwork done to it, but um, Defence is embarking on a massive program at the moment, the Enterprise Resource Planning ERP uh, program, which will replace a lot of our major IT systems. Mm. Um, but, you know, anything anything IT and Defence is going to be challenging because yeah. we have so many um, a, a complex business that we run mm. and we have so many security requirements as well that um, means that, you know, it, it's not easy to take an off-the-shelf product. We, mm. we need to overlay a lot of security elements to it. Yeah, yeah, it's highly technical. And that technology change in the ADF must also be making it a lot more competitive um, for marks as well as in how you how you performed it at school. Like when I joined in 1991, it was almost like um, anyone who was lost or didn't really know what they were going to do um, sort of looked at the the army defense force as that sort of stepping stone um someone like myself always knew they were going to going to go there and then make a career out of it but that that's a lot different now isn't it because now you now you're attracting people because of the technology itself yeah and we have a range of opportunities i think we have almost 300 different roles in defense so we have a range of opportunities for a range of abilities um so we are usually able to find um, a job that fit for most people. Yeah. Um, and it, it is competitive. Some of the jobs that are really highly sought after are hugely competitive. Um, so we have we take the best and the brightest, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but there are still some roles that are difficult to fill um, and you know, we need to work hard to make sure that we are still attracting the best and brightest in those areas. A role that um, is just opening up now which will... Uh, be really attractive to a lot of this current generation is uh, in cyber warfare. So mm. uh, Air Force in particular has just created its cyber warfare analyst and its cyber warfare officer and we'll have our first intake later this year. Mm. Um, Army uh, in their electronic warfare operators, um, Navy with their cryptological linguists and cryptological operators and in the crypto network area, you know, um, people who um, are very technically savvy will get young people into these roles yeah. and they will just run rings around um, their more senior people because they are digital natives. It's what they do and they're very comfortable with an iPad in their hand. You and I probably have to think about you know, how we navigate around an, um, a computer system, 
these guys just do it um, intuitively. Mm. Yeah, and I think anyone who who knows anything about coding and, and the like knows that being a digital native is not not enough. Actually, to to do coding, you need to have studied it and and love it. Being a digital native though gives you a foot in the door to wanting to know what's going on in the computer behind the scenes, and that's where you know hours and hours and hours spent coding when they're in high school then comes to the fore when they decide to join the the military. Um, but I think that that person. That type of war that's going to be played out in the asymmetric battlefield of the future, like on- online social networking, um, at the at the in the dark web, places like that, that type of soldier is going to be very different, isn't it, than than say Private Connolly from nineteen ninety one. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that on that? What are your thoughts on that new sort of soldier, and and how are we going to how are we going to attract them, and then and then keep them? Um, interested. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, just to go back to the coding um, issue, Bram, I think that, uh, and, you know, this could go for so many things. I wonder if artificial intelligence is actually going to take over coding. Um, How much will we have to invest in that in the future? I don't know. Um, But there's so much that uh, AI will make redundant in the future. But what we're seeing is that AI is actually creating a whole new um, workforce and, um, you know, people say to me, oh, you know, we'll all be out of a job. And it's like, no, we won't be out of the job completely, but we'll be out of the current job, yep, because we'll create new jobs. And there was some figure someone quoted me the other day that something like 60% of the jobs of the kids in kindergarten now will do don't exist yet. Mm. <clears throat> so it, it is going to be really different. And we um, are looking at our recruiting standards all the time and we're talking to Army, Navy and Air Force and saying, you know, we, we need to think differently about what it is we're recruiting for and who we're recruiting. Yeah. Um, so there will be people who operate differently and we want that diversity in thinking um, in our force because it will it will need um, person, people who do think differently to our current soldiers, sailors and airmen. Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, do you think there's much of a difference in... In today's generation, though, you know, are they less likely to go and roll around in the mud, carry the stretches, do do the work? Now, I'm Gen X, and and I took millennials and Gen Y into Afghanistan, you know, and I saw them in rolling gun battles. Most people who listen to this podcast know about Zabat Kalei and rolling through rolling through those compounds in amongst women and children, and you know, and 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 killing or being killed, you know. And I thought those guys that I had quitted themselves as well as any any soldier from any any part of our history i'm just wondering does does recruiting does the adf recruiting look at society and then look at the generations and then see how that then translates into coming into the into the current current operating environment we do study the different generations uh that we are recruiting from so who is our target audience and what is it that resonates with them and how do we attract them to the roles what what is it that we do that is attractive to them Mm. so a lot of um young women in particular uh and a lot of young men find the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief role that we have um, as very appealing because they want to make a difference to the world. And I would say that, um, that you know, the soldier of the Vietnam era versus the soldier of today, they're just different and they have to be different because they're operating in different environments with different technology um, and different um, tactics and uh, methods. So they are different. Um, better, worse, I wouldn't say either. Um, it's just different. And 
you know, the soldiers you took into Afghanistan, they they were good. Why were they good? Because I would say that the Australian Defence Force has the best training organisation in Australia and potentially the world. Mm. We, we take people and um, give them the skills that they need to do. And, you know, when we talk to candidates who come into the centre about their responsibilities and obligations with respect to combat, we're very upfront with them about the expectations of the government mm. in being able to go into combat roles. Mm. But what we tell them is that they will be um, suitably equipped to do that. They mm. will get the best training possible to make sure that they're able to deal with that. And they'll be equipped with the best technology and equipment um, to, to undertake that role. Um, so I think that... Uh, the generation um, is different. Mm. Um, we do need to do a bit more work in the um, physical fitness space. Mm. And, you know, we see that with the um, state of Australia's um, health. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we don't have to put so much work into some of the other areas where they're already, you know, whether it be the digital native aspect of it or, um, you know, what they've learned at school or, or their ability to communicate via digital means, um, you know, we don't have to put too much effort into that space. Yeah. Do you think our deployments, our long-standing commitment to Afghanistan had a, a detrimental impact <laughs> towards the end on recruitment numbers? Do you think that maybe that was something that started to slow down people applying for the ADF or, or not really? Um, there are lots of factors that impact our recruiting results, both positive and negative factors. Um, you know, unemployment rate, we're at uh, a very low unemployment rate at the moment nationally. I think it's at about 5%. Uh, I don't think it's, I think we were at 4.9 earlier in the year and I don't think it's been uh, as low as that or lower since the global financial crisis back in 08. Um, the youth unemployment rate at the moment is about 11 or 12%, which is below the 10-year average of about 14.5%. So those um, certainly impact our ability to meet our targets. Um, the narrative behind what we do, um, it's important that people understand that and uh, that's one of the, the roles that uh, my team has in making sure that the community understands what their role would be should they join Defence. Mm. Um, and our, we, we've done um, really well, particularly over the last you know three to five years. There's a, a report out by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, uh, about two weeks ago and they've collated the percentage of recruitment targets met from 1998 uh, through to 2017-18. In 2017-18, we hit 94% of the ADF's target. In 2016-17, 97%. And in 2015-16, 90%. And this year, we're looking at hitting at about 91-92%. So we're really hitting those targets. The, the ones that are missed, are often those really hard-to-get tar um, targets that everybody's struggling with. So engineers and doctors and people who have a science, technology, engineering, maths background. So we're no different to any other employer in Australia in that we're struggling to get some of those high-end skills that the, that the community is just not producing enough of. Yeah. It's a tough operating environment where you're where you're drawing on the human resource and you've got all these competing factors, especially if there's another another mining boom coming, you, you know, you start to lose people for the, the attraction of the money as well. So, yeah, it's a difficult difficult operating environment for you, I'm sure. I just want to ask you some some leadership questions because it would be remiss of me not to have someone who spent as long in leadership roles as you have without learning something from you, I think. First of all, what's your definition of leadership? Uh, well, you know, you could probably write a PhD on this. Um, 
is that what you're doing your PhD on, Brad? That's right. <laughs> um, I, quite simply, um, I talk about influencing people to pursue the organisational goals. So h- how do you do that? And I see leadership is of the heart, management is of the head. Um, and when I was the Executive Officer Cadets at the Australian Defence Force Academy and I'd talk to the cadets about what leadership was, I would tell them to lead from their heart and not from their rank sides. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I had a lot of problems with that as a as a junior leader. Probably the, probably the worst thing in the military for a leader is the Defence Force Disciplinary Act because it it it's, it sits behind your rank, and it means that people won't call you out for being a knob. Um, and there was there was times when I definitely probably well definitely definitely um, was hiding behind that rank at some point. Um, and not really understanding it. And then also I used to think that I had to cut people away if they weren't good for the team. But I now realise that that is actually more of a reflection on on my leadership at that time, not being able to deal with those people. Yeah, yeah it's like people who say when you, you know, you're know you yelling in an argument, it's like if you feel you need to yell to be understood, work on your argument. I'm a passionate person, so if I'm yelling, I'm not generally yelling, I'm just reinforcing a point. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you are right. I think. And I think that, you know, from a um, leadership perspective, I mean, there's, the situational leadership model that we teach um, has has so many different aspects to it. And depending on the environment you're in, uh, you choose the type of leadership that you employ. And depending on the results you want to achieve, how quickly you want to achieve it, you know, everything from, you know, the telling through to the collaborative, um, participative um, leadership model. And, and, and that's, um, you know, something we do teach our junior leaders is about choosing the right model for the time yeah. and place and um, outcome that you want to achieve. Yeah, leadership is easy until you get people involved. <laughs> and it all turns to shit. <laughs> is there anyone out there who, who you can use as an example of someone who espouses great leadership um, or leads in a way that has <clears> inspired <throat> you? And, and I'm just going to caveat that with, I saw something recently where the chief of the defence force stepped in when the minister was about to um, start start using the chief of navy and air force and army as props for a political message, and the chief defence force just stepped in and said, "Would you mind if uh, if if my guys just got off the stage while you talk about this particular issue?" And I thought that was some of the best leadership I've seen in years. Yeah, there's lots of examples. I mean, uh, you know, um, Sir Angus Houston um, was a great leader, and he um, demonstrated lots of courage in lots of different ways. Um, uh, and you know the, the one uh, I think it was Angus who said it to me once a, a takeaway well I use it in, his name in vain it all the time to try to have people understand about um, risk taking and um, and I think it was uh, with respect to the F111 board of inquiry into the seal reseal and you know we got that wrong we got that wrong on so many levels and we heard a lot of people um, in that F111 workforce but uh, he, he said, you know, shit happens, but it's what you do about it that matters. Yeah. And I think that that, for me, is a, is a key tenant um, so that our people are not afraid to take a calculated risk when you need to take a risk. Um, but, you know, when it doesn't work out, then you go, okay, we, we learned from that, we'll learn from it, and uh, how do we now deal with the fallout from that? Um, yeah, yeah, so General Campbell, um, yeah, a great, great move by him. I mean, there's so many different... Um, types of leadership and and who you would um, and this is what we tell our trainees is that you'll see lots of different styles exercise but you take 
what resonates for you from each of those leaders and make it your own to be authentic. So authentic leadership is the um, the answer. So when I was a junior officer, I had there were no no senior women that I worked for until I was a squadron leader. So as far as having a role model um, that I could model and learn from, I just had men. And a lot of cases, you know, they were infantry captains. Mm. And so when I tried to emulate um, their leadership style, it didn't work for me. No surprises there, I guess. Um, And so being that um, authentic leader and identifying what works for someone else and whether you can adapt it and make it work for you is um, is the key. Um, don't try and be someone you're not. The troops will smell a phony a mile off and they'll call you on it, as you said. Yeah. So um, and it could be, uh, you know, some of the warrant officers I've had work for me that I thought were amazing leaders. Um, I had a squadron leader when I was a flying officer. Um, people um, referred to him as no hope. Um, the guy had serious PTSD out of... Um, his time in the Middle East, he was with the MFO and he'd seen a busload of school children get blown up. And understandably, that had an, an amazing impact on who he was. And, um, you know, but he was a leader uh, who taught me so much and um, I will always be in his debt um, for that. He, he was an authentic leader who um, was willing to take this very bolshy junior officer and nurture me and uh, teach me in a way that, uh, uh, as my dad used to say, you want to break the horse, not its spirit. Yeah, it got me thinking before. I was thinking about um, in 2010 when um, Sir Angus Houston and Julia Gillard came to Tarrancout, and I, and I realised when I was talking to um, the Air Chief Marshal at the time that every other time I'd ever seen him and then every time I'd seen him since was on TV talking about one of my friends who'd been killed. And I think that I probably took that fairly personally. And But it, it was only on reflection just, just now that I, that I think of how heavy that must have weighed on him from a leadership perspective to always be on the TV to deliver that message. Um, must have been bloody difficult, I think. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, some other senior officers who have served in the Middle East as the commander or the deputy commander, um, when we've had to um, put young soldiers um, into caskets and send them home, um, all those rant ceremonies, um, there's one in particular, he he, he still struggles with that. Um, And so, you know, we have soldiers and sailors and airmen who pay the ultimate Price in serving their nation, um, but those who are left behind, um, whether it be family, friends, colleagues, uh, are also rocked by that. And, and a lot of them actually suffer terribly from survivor guilt. Yeah. You know, why wasn't it me? Mm. Um, and uh, I have immense respect for these people who are able to put themselves out there and um, also support their families and those who are left behind. Um, but yeah, Sir Angus uh, is a great leader. Um, he, he's a very tall man, you may have noticed, and yeah. <laughs> he's very considerate for others, you know, little things that he does. So he, I think, has actually um, developed a stoop over the years. Because he is so tall, he's very conscious of that, and he doesn't, you know, uh, lord it over people. He will um, bend and stoop down to talk to people at eye level so that there is no um, uh huge mass and size, um, talking, he's not talking down to people. He tries to get to their level. And it's just simple things like that that leaders do yeah. that um, make a difference to people and enable them to 
to contribute um, to their best of their ability. I saw some good leadership. I've seen lots of great leadership in, in the Army, to be honest. Um, and I know who you were talking about before, and it was General Cantwell. And he, he came to Tarrancout not long after we'd had a particularly violent battle and came and talked individually, pretty sure, to, to just about everyone in my uh, commando platoon, you know, just at, in the mess, over a coffee, how are things, what are you up to? And he must have talked to nearly every guy in that platoon over the time that he was there. With no, There was no reason for it other than just to come and talk to the lads, and it was, you know, it was a bloody good thing to see, actually. Which makes me wonder about ADF personnel understanding that aspect to leadership. And then, you know, would you think they were better than, than people in the, in the private sector at that? Um, it's different. So different... Different uh, leadership styles. Um, and, you know, uh, just to go back, Bram, I, I was thinking about General Cantwell, but um, there was there's more than, than him. And, you know, the one in particular I want to call out was an Air Force One star, who I won't name, okay. but um, he was seriously affected by the number of rant ceremonies that he had performed. So it doesn't discriminate um, by service. Um, going back to... Uh, whether ADF people are better at leadership than the private sector. As I said, it's different. It's a different kind of leadership. Mm. And I think that there'd be military people who would struggle um, with some of the commercial leadership and leadership in the um, in the public sector um, that we ask of our public servants um, and also in the private sector um, that we ask of our captains of industry. Mm. But there was some uh, commentary recently about the number of former senior um, ADF officers who leave and who go on to um, senior positions, whether it be in the national security machinery or into industry. And, and they very much focused on going into the national security uh, aspects. And, you know, General Hurley as well now, soon to previously our um, Governor of New South Wales uh, and now to be our Governor General, um, Sir Peter Cosgrove as a Governor General, uh, and a number of others who have gone into very senior government or vice-regal appointments. <clears throat> but they also uh, failed in that article to focus on the number who go into industry or into politics. Um, and we have a number of uh, graduates of the Australian Defence Force Academy, as an example, who sit in Parliament now. Uh, and, in fact, our Defence Minister is a former Reserve Officer, um, Senator Linda Reynolds. So she served for many years and um, finished as a brigadier. So that their leadership they can take. And the, the secret, though, is whether they're able to adapt that leadership to the environment that they go into. Um, captains of industry, uh, you know, we have the head of uh, Boeing Australia, um, Darren Edwards, is a former Defence Academy graduate. So they, they go to lots of different um, aspects of Australian society. As I said, it's whether they are um, adaptable and able to adapt their leadership style to the new environment they find themselves in. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It is different. It is a different style of leadership. I think you can you can learn a lot about leadership from serving in the ADF when you get into the private sector and then and into government. As you say, there's different aspects to it that you probably can't even imagine just by, by being an ADF. Um, leader. But, but Bram, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, leadership is our profession. Yeah. We are in the profession of arms, but yeah. leadership is, is what the ADF is all about. That's what, it's what we produce. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is subtly different in the private sector in, in the demands that are put on those leaders, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Just different. Do you think that a leader can be friends with their subordinates? Uh, Bram, you will remember from your own training um, that uh, the three Fs, Firm, fair, and friendly. So what do we teach our leaders to be? And uh, so can they be friends? Hmm. 
don't know about that. Takes a particular kind of person. Can they be friendly? Absolutely. Um, so I think there's there's a difference there, um, and it, it takes two parties to a friendship uh, in that relationship. And I've had friends who've worked for me, and uh, we have had an understanding. You know, going into the arrangement, are you happy for me to come and be part of your team? Um, are you happy um, to come and work for me? And um, that, that's an open conversation that that I've always had with people who've come, friends who have come to work for me to make sure that we have a clear understanding about that and, and to where to draw the line, where to close the hangar doors, so to speak. Yeah. So you have that set up up front and, and you're right, with a, a friendship is a mutual affection. It's not being friendly with someone. It's when the two of you share a mutual affection. The problem with that is that it can lead to someone getting a benefit over someone else, um, preferential treatment and the like. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. You need that, that line in the sand prior to that, um, that leadership journey. I think that's a perfect answer, to be honest. For a lot of people who say you definitely cannot, but the problem is if you're – so, for, for instance, for, for me, I went from a sergeant to a captain and the next thing you know, my peers became my subordinates in some cases and some of them were good friends. So you, you can't escape that. <laughs> um, but there has to be a – Yeah, we, we try to avoid it. Mm. We do try to avoid it and um, I'm not a fan of promoting within. I think that that puts a lot of unfair pressure on your former peers and then your future subordinates and also on, on the um, yeah. person who's been promoted – so we try to avoid it. But in your inner defence force of our size, it's always going to happen yeah. that um, people serve with on operations in particular, you know, people, particularly in small teams, um, you become quite close with. Then, you know, they, they it could be that they end up, you know, as in your situation, um, being one of your subordinates down the track. And it go, it's a measure of um, a person's professionalism as to how they deal with that. Yeah. Not only from the two people in the friendship, but those around them. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so resilience <laughs> from your ADF career, from your Air Force career in particular, what have you learned about resilience? Do you think it's something that's taught or do you think it's genetic or do you think it's a mixture of the two? What are your thoughts, Sue? I think it's a bit of both, but mostly we build it rather than teach it. And I think you need to have a foundation. Um, you know, Remembering we uh, have people join the ADF when they've already had usually a minimum of um, 17 or 18 years on this planet already mm. where they've had multiple factors influencing the person they've become. Mm. And, uh, you know, people who have had adverse experiences in their childhood mm. often are able to walk those away. And it's only when there's an event uh, in their adult life that triggers that or un opens that Pandora's box, so to speak, um, and they crumble. Um, building a resilience is something that we do focus very much on in the ADF because we recognise the stresses that we put people under. It's not an everyday job and we ask them to do a lot of things that they wouldn't be asked to do in any other occupation. And uh, we, we screen uh, as part of that when they joined uh, through recruiting to make sure that they are resilient to undertake the training and then that we will be able to um, build on that resilience and make them a more resilient human uh, to deal with the stresses of military life. So it's a bit of build um, and teach, but it's also the foundation um, from which people come uh, as to whether they've got the ability to build on that. And I did a course a few years ago called the ASSIST course, a very unfortunate name actually, it's the Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. 
And the, my takeaway from that was that, you know, everyone has a different level of um, mental resilience as we do physical resilience, a different pain threshold, um, both mentally and physically. And so I have a very low physical pain threshold, very low. Frustrates some people a lot. I cut my finger and I'm crying. Um, but I think my, my um, mental uh, pain threshold is a lot higher mm. because of a lot of the experiences that I've had that has built that resilience over years. And we see it a lot in um, health professionals, uh, particularly those who work in emergency departments, um, how resilient they become um, because of what they're exposed to incrementally over their career. And I think it's... Um, it's something that we, we need to study more about so that we protect the human and we give them protective factors um, uh, and coping strategies throughout their career, which also makes them um, uh, more resilient um, when they leave the Defence Force and um, they continue to become contributing members of society. Yeah, I wish I'd known more about it as a as a younger leader because I would have used it as a capability building brick for you know teams, sections, platoons, building that resilience training. And exp- there's a lot of things that we did, you know, a lot, you know, stretcher carries from Earl's Court in Tully all the way down to the obstacle course in 12 kilometres in the in the rain. That's building resilience, but we didn't know that. We weren't talking about that at the time. Yeah. And I think if you've got a frame of reference for it, then you're able to even sell it harder than 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 just an occurring thing because you have to do it. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said, and I just think that it's one of those areas that we're really, really new to in defence, and we need to think about it um, a little bit more. Absolutely. So... Air Commodore McGreedy CSC, what message do you have to any young guys and girls out there thinking that a career in the ADF might suit them? Oh, wow. Um, Reflecting on 32 years of service. So when I was a junior officer um, and I came out of the Defence Academy, because we had three years of our study paid for for us, you know, a lot of my peers would say, oh, so what are you going to do? Your return of service obligation, which is your training time plus one year. So three years of training, then I had to serve for four years before I could leave. I said, so you're just going to do your return of service obligation and leave? And I went, you know, I think I'm just going to keep going till I stop having a good time. And so 32 years later, I'm still having a great time. Every day of the week, um, you know, I tell my team, every day of the week we are giving amazing opportunities to young Australians. And uh, I would say take the opportunity for world-class training, education and adventure. Serve your nation and your community and you really can do anything you want to put your mind to. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people who uh, join and they do their initial minimum period of service and that's it. They've had their fun time, as uh, some put it, and then they go off and do something different. Um, but all the skills that they've learned in the Defence Force, I think, makes the Australian community a, a much more robust, resilient um, community. And as I said, you know, our people leave and they go on to become politicians, captains of industry, leaders in the public sector, private sector, wherever. So it's an amazing opportunity and uh, I have no regrets about my career and the things that I've been able to do, the travel I've done and the person that it's made me. Yeah. I'm sure you're very similar to me in a lot of ways and you see your service as something that was your honour to do. And, and you're probably as uncomfortable as I am when people say, hey, I want to thank you for your service. It's a, it's a thing that's crept in in the last 
five or so years, I guess. I certainly feel uncomfortable when I hear people say that because I'm like, have you got any idea the money that I've wasted in the ADF, <laughs> the things that I've done, the places I've gone? I'm sort of wondering, do you, do you get that same sort of sense? Does that sort of sit? I don't think it's a cultural thing for sure. Yeah, I think it is. It's a cultural cringe, I think, for Australians. Um, I was actually, I stopped in at uh, Coles on the way home the other night to pick up some um fresh fruit and veg and some bread from the bakers and uh, this guy was looking at me. I was in uniform and uh, he was looking at me and, you know, you're always cautious in a public place when people mm. pay you too much attention in uniform. Mm. But he stopped and he turned around and looked at me and I went, uh-oh. And he went, ma'am, I'd just like to thank you for your service. I gave a little bit of a chuckle and looked down because I, I was embarrassed by it. Uh, and I thought afterwards, he probably thought I was being really disrespectful. And uh, so now... Uh, I'm, I'm very conscious that I look them back in the eye and I say, no, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it does make me very uncomfortable. Uh, but it, And it's cringe. I think it's the Australian cringeworthy thing. It's a very much an American thing. Uh, a girlfriend of mine was in the States and she was on a, a work trip and she'd stopped somewhere to have dinner in a restaurant and uh, she went to pay. And they said, oh, no, 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 um, that family over there has already paid, oh, wow. uh, who was sitting over there, they'd already left. Um, they paid for your meal. And apparently that's quite common over there that a, um, a service person will have their meal paid for them by just some random stranger. But I think that our people are well paid and we do have amazing opportunities, but we ask an awful lot of our people. And, you know, that's reflected in the way we look after them when they leave as well. And, you know, having lived in a couple of places around the world and travelled and worked with lots of other militaries, I think, in my opinion, we have the best veterans care system in the world mm, we're certainly getting there i'm fairly outspoken on the whole um veterans not being victims and but, but that comes with a we need to we need to support them on the way out the door it's not just be proud and get out and then go and live on the streets but yeah i do think that we're we're certainly making inroads into supporting people who've served the country it's an ongoing journey and uh, my boss at the moment she talks about personal security so when our people leave that they um are connected to community that they are financially um, savvy, um, that they know how to do things like how to access a Medicare card um, or to access the Medicare system, the medical system outside of it. Simple things that people in the community take for granted, but you know we've never had to do because we just go to medical and yeah. um, get treated. And you go to the pharmacy, you pick up your drugs and off you go. Mm. Um, People, when people leave, they don't know how to do that. So we need to give them a sense of security. We need to skill them into how to do things like that that we've, they've never, ever had to do before. Yeah. Um, and, and it goes across so many different levels of their personal life that uh, we need to think about how we skill them to make that transition. Well, so you've been really generous with your time this morning. And I do want to thank you for 32 years of service to the nation. I think that's an incredible feat. So, so thank you. But having said that, I'm also... On, as you can tell, I'm on my own journey and um, you're, you're one of the people who I've been watching from afar. Regards to that, that journey and, and forming the opinions that I'm, that I'm forming now about you know, women in the ADF, women in combat, myself and where I, where I sit socially and, and what society should look like in a whole. So uh, I just want to thank you for that, that leadership that you're showing in that space. Hey, thanks, Bram. And uh, I uh, pinch myself every day for the opportunity that I've been given by the nation to lead some of the finest men and women that this country's produced. Oh, that's rehearsed, surely. <laughs> no, that just came out. That was it. That was it brilliant. is every day. I, 
I have, um, you know, and it's my recruiters. I go out there and these people, they love what they do mm-hmm. and they tell people to come and join the ADF and yeah. and do what I love doing. And yeah. um, they're very passionate about what they do, my recruiters. I, I just love going out in the centre and you, know, you talked about General Cantwell going out and visiting the boys and having a brew with them. I love going out in the centres and visiting my team um, because they are so passionate about what they do because they love what they do and they say, come and do what I do. This week's episode is sponsored by SWORD, Special Operations Research and Development. So, I should say up front that I know the founder of SWORD. We were in the Tactical Assault Group together. In fact, we were in the same team during our CT training. And in the years that followed, much of the load-carrying equipment that I trusted in some of the harshest places on Earth was supplied by SWORD. It's no stretch to say that this equipment is built by operators for operators. Actually, come to think of it, my first ever plate carrier was sword, and at one stage, probably every piece of field kit that I carried had been purchased either by myself or the unit. Check out the website, and by using the code WARRIOR, you can receive 10% off the listed price on any item. That's 10% off just by using the code WARRIOR. 